Change starts with being conscious. The conscious choice to change is half the battle. So if you've already decided I want to do something differently, you're already halfway there. You are not your job. We put so much status in the Western world on what we do, not who we are. And who you are actually defines what you do and how you do it. And we get those very confused a lot of the time. You can shift your view on yourself however you want it to be shifted. But in the same way that that can be an incredibly enabling thing, it can be an incredibly destructive thing. Your mind is a weapon and it can either be used for good or for bad. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Holloway, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy and fulfilment along the way. I know I say this every single time, and let's be real, it would be impossible for me to ever choose one sole favourite episode, but I think this one really stands out for how much practical advice my wonderful friend Shelley Lesler generously imparts throughout. While we explore her way to yay and the non-linear nature of the journey, like many other episodes, I love this one so much because she demonstrates at the same time why she is so incredibly brilliant at what she does and why she was meant to end up exactly where she has. While it took her a while to realise it, Shelley was born to be a neuroscience coach and the next hour is just a little taste of the transformative work she does unlocking your best you, shifting mindsets and backing it up with the hardcore brain science. Honestly, it's like getting free coaching, so get your pens and paper out, kids, you're in for a roller coaster ride. From politics and philosophy to advising startups, then a master's of neuroscience to founding her own coaching business, Vitae, Shelley is among the most articulate people I've ever had the pleasure of speaking to. But still, of course, never without a good chuckle or two, you'll hear us have a good laugh over cowboys, cowgirls, and the more appropriate cow person. <laughs> I hope you take as much out of this as I did. I still have my Manuka Honey Lawson dream. So last time we were going to record this, I lost my voice, which has never happened before. I mean, I maybe got halfway there, but I was like, I had an event the next day that I was hosting and I was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry, Shelly, I'm so sorry, my voice is going. And she was like, don't worry, I've got this face steam over a basin of hot water and Manuka honey lozenges. She's got one right now. <laughs> nothing nothing wrong with Manuka honey. It's an elixir of life. There are very few things that this woman doesn't have a wealth of knowledge on. I'm so excited to have her on the show. Thank you so much for giving me five million chances of rescheduling <laughs> and being late and being such a freaking flake. But I love you dearly and cannot wait to share your brain with everybody. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Worried for everybody. <laughs> Absolutely not. I had the pleasure of meeting Shelley in Fiji at Nurture Her and was blown away by just, oh, you taught me so much about my own brain. <laughs> it was amazing. So, as you know, we start every episode we start every episode with a way TA, which is how you got to where you are. But mm-hmm. first, I love to start with asking everyone what the most down-to-earth thing is about them. <sighs> That's such a hard thing, and I think it's that you know, I'm a person. I think people, people <laughs> forget. That sounds really basic, but 
I think when I start talking to people about their brain and I can explain these processes that people think it doesn't happen to me. And it's like, no, even though I know how it's going to happen, it's still going to happen. And I think that is to say, like, you know, I get angry. I lose my cool like everybody else. That's part of what it is to be human. You know, I make mistakes. I've made many mistakes, which we'll talk about through this podcast throughout my career. And I think what's really important about that down to earth thing and then maybe from a personality perspective is humility. I fundamentally believe in humility I don't think you ever stop being a person you know you look at people who have huge fame and huge success and they start to become this hybrid version of human in some ways Mm. you know where they're acting quite robotic and they're hiding who they are and I don't think that you can ever get to that point and be a happy person so humility to me and keeping it real and being honest which I think is an iconically Australian trait is something that's really important. And as long as I have my humility, no matter what happens or what I learn or what I know about the incredible mind that we all have and the 100 billion neurons that cruise around in there. <laughs> Science fact number one. <laughs> I'm, still a, I'm, still a, I'm still a person, yeah. you know? Like I don't think knowledge in any discipline, no matter how deep and wide you go, can take away your humility or fame and how successful you become as long as you're humble then you're always going to be that down-to-earth thing. And I guess for me, that's a central tenant to who I am with humility. Oh, my gosh. Can you already see how eloquent she is? <laughs> and why I don't really see her as a human being? <laughs> Stop <laughs> it. It's so human. Don't you worry. <laughs> so you're way TA. Yes. Now, tell us about young Shelley. So all huh. the way back, pre-neuroscience, pre-all of the brain things, what were you like at school? And what did you think that you wanted to be when you grew up? Uh, when I was really little, I wanted to be an athlete. I was quite athletic. Oh. Yeah, I was quite athletic as a kid. I loved sports. I loved the outdoors. I was pretty um, involved in most sports. That continued on through my... I know, I'm like, you're still pretty sporty. Yeah, it continued <laughs> on through my life. But um, I think young me, like I definitely wasn't... I don't know if cool was the word I would use. I was definitely preppy. I, was in the, I would have been in the glee club if it was in America. Oh, yeah, I, was de- okay. I was definitely preppy. I was pretty like I guess we were popular such a silly oh my god you were in the popular group (laughs) no because I wasn't cool though I was I was geeky like I wasn't but like the geeky cool group yeah maybe if that something exists if it exists (laughs) as in like I did lots of sport and extracurricular activities I did lots of debating I was SRC I was what else do sports captain you know all that kind of stuff and um pretty much any extracurricular activity that you could name I was involved in which <laughs> doesn't you know, surprise me I guess you know, growing up I had a lot of FOMO but yeah I was in musicals <laughs> and um yeah there was a lot of things I guess at that point when I was really young I wanted to be an athlete and a marine biologist because I loved the environment mm. I was still super tripped out by many things that happened in nature and I was I remember being really upset one time when I worked out like what recycling did to the planet from watching like a BTN documentary and I was so upset. I came home like starting this petition to like get everyone to sign it and I just oh. being like a little rainbow crusader. But I can't say that continued on. Like, <laughs> I still love the environment and I do have my keep cup and reduce plastic. But at high school level is very much my obsession around behavior and people started to develop mm-hmm. um, and that uh, came through in a number of ways, whether or not it was through business studies or whether or not through, it was through history. I b- had a big obsession with history and politics because it really wow. was about human behaviour and the change of events and, and courses. Um, still had a massive obsession with the body and so like PE was definitely my big, my big subject. But at that point I was looking towards more the social science, behavioural science, psychology, but also law. So those were the two competing priorities. 
Well, that's a lie, actually. There were three. Um, <laughs> I'm like, only two, yeah, Shelley. Yeah, there were three, Come actually. On. No, so the big other tenant, the big other part of who I was a lot at high school and what I really derived a lot of passion from was music. So okay. musical theatre was the other option. Um, wow. Yeah. Very diverse. Very diverse. And I actually had a lot of struggling periods where I had to choose and I found that really hard mm. because when you're young, you get encouraged to do so many things and then suddenly you have to narrow into this this is what I'm going to do and who I'm going to be. And I think if I look, you know, across any of my career, I haven't followed that really in any way. There's been some core themes, yeah. but <laughs> it's core themes, but there's been a lot of change as well. So, you know, young me, I definitely wasn't cool, but I was always, always interested in people and how we are, who we are, what we are and why we do what we do. Mm. That has been for as long as I can remember part of me. It's so interesting because I always think that this is why I love doing this section because you see how all the pieces come together in order and then you look back with hindsight and it kind of all makes sense, even if it's messy and it's yeah. at the time you had no idea where it was leading. It's so interesting that your fascination with people and behaviours has been there since school, you know. You might yeah. not have ever known that it, this is how it would manifest now, but it, the interest was there, which is so interesting. Massively. that Like, it's undeniable to the point that it's what motivated me and drove me a lot um, in many different ways, environment and both personality. But, yeah, hugely. I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Yeah, totally. <laughs> It's always very easy to go back and, oh, I can connect the dots now, but yeah. even that in itself is a neurological bias because yeah. you're just validating something that you already know, you know now. Like, yeah. But, yes. So you're an Adelaide girl, went to I am. University of Adelaide. I did. And ended up going with the social sciences, so I international did. studies, social yes. sciences, and then University of East Anglia. Yeah, so that was an exchange. Oh, cool. Yeah. So again, international politics and philosophy. Yes. Relations and affairs. <laughs> I know, it's quite a mouthful, isn't it, for us? And then graduated in 2009 and headed to London. Did you go straight there and was that on purpose? Did you think that what, you know, it's quite a broad degree. So what did you mm. think you were going to kind of become at that stage? Um, I think at the point of graduation, I really wanted to go into diplomacy. I really wanted to go work for DFAT and I did a lot of things down that, that sort of direction. And then sort of from my time overseas, basically what happened is I moved overseas when I was 19 to do this um, part of my degree and I just fell in love with it. Mm. I fell in love with being there and, you know, for me it was actually the first time I'd been overseas. So one, <gasps> ever, and then two of my <laughs> and own. from Adelaide. And from Adelaide. So, I mean, East Anglia is a little sleepy town. Like Norwich is a lovable university town. It's actually where Stephen Fry is from. Oh, no way. Yeah, so it's a cute, it's his biggest claim to fame, that and Alan Partridge, but he's not really real, so. Yeah. <laughs> Tim's story. Um, but, yeah, I just, I fell in love with, in UK universities, very similar to the US, it's very campus style. People mm. move away to go to university. And for the first time, I really felt like I could actually be quite free to be me. I did, really didn't feel like that in Adelaide. And I think anyone from South Australia that grew up in Adelaide would probably attest to a bit of a tall poppy syndrome. I mean, you can make it work. Like, you know, Kayla and our gorgeous Taryn, who we also know from Nurture Her, you can sort of make it work for you. But it's also quite a closed environment. Mm. And I have a long family history there and that I felt really influenced as how I could and couldn't behave. 
And so for the first time, I'm like there and I'm free and completely yeah, open like, to be anybody. In the pool <laughs> and you could be anyone. And I really found a lot of who I was in that place. And, you know, my time experiencing European history and, and going to these places that I had only been reading about in textbooks really made my love affair for history and, and diplomacy and, and namely social science, e.g. why do we do what we do mm. in anthropology as a study? Who are we? Why mm. do we do these things? Why are people able of such creative, diverse, intuitive, intellectual thinking, but then we're also these murderous, vengeful, envious things at the same time and we're this interesting juxtaposition. And no matter what I did in my degree or how I studied it, I couldn't get away from that obsession. So diplomacy was about how do I stop these, how do I play a part in stopping the terrible things that I'm studying and the way that we behave through having more effective forms of governance and through having more effective ways of working together. Now, that's pretty idealistic, as you would imagine. <laughs> I still have those views. 19-year-old Shelley. Yeah, it doesn't, make a lot, it doesn't make you a lot of money. So really what the realisation was was that my first role that I did take was in governance, was in, um, in the government, and just how ineffective it was mm. and how frustrated I was by the, the bureaucracy in which I was dealing with. So... At that point, I was like, okay, you know what? Like, It's not for me right now. I'm out. <laughs> yeah. I need to go back to London and I need to diversify a bit. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Yeah. And so it's interesting that then not having come from a business background mm. and had that basis, you know, at uni that and, and having these kind of diplomacy government focused interests to begin with, that then you went very heavy in the startup yeah. direction. Yeah. <laughs> like. Pretty much from there went balls deep. Yeah, yeah, completely. And this is what I mean by a lot of change, right? So I think spending time in corporate prior to startup, though, Mm -hmm. I mean, that was, you know, probably we'll come back to that in terms of that journey, which is an interesting one in itself. Yeah. Very much. But startup to me was like, well, if you think about the things that I had been attracted to and the people that I had been reading, you know, I was reading people of the Renaissance, people of, you know, changing thoughts and opinions, people who had led Enlightenment periods mm. and those thinkers. And really that's... were disrupting kind of back then. Hugely yeah. and hugely controversial and often at the point to their own and their family's health and welfare. Mm. And, you know, if we think about fast-forwarding, you know, if we had to apply that in a modern day, where are those people? Who are they? And they are the founders and the entrepreneurs. They are the new renegades. You know, maybe they're not necessarily arguing against the church. Sometimes they are. The church is obviously very different <laughs> yeah. back then. But, you know, those thinkers, those progressive viewers those people who challenge the status quo and push forward I've always found those people interesting and attractive and attractive not necessarily in a, in a physical sense but <laughs> I mean, like well he's they're hot. always hotter than everyone else <laughs> yeah. like, that's not true. Guy. Yeah. in a weird kind of way but in a sense of you know attracted to those renegades mm. and you know that comes with uh, and I think anyone that you've had on here that's an entrepreneur you know like Justin would say that from Vino you know it is a bit of a license to be a cowboy or a cowgirl. And so you've got to kind of take it with or a grain a cow of salt. person. Yeah, cow person. <laughs> Equally okay with cow person. Yep. Um, how curious. That's new. Yep. Yep. Let's go with that. Trans cow. Trans cow. Um, I don't know what else you would say. No, I think that's the, the, the totality of the cow. Yeah, probably. Yeah. We're probably done. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Who knows? Who Maybe knows? Cows I mean, it could by come nature out later. are only girls though because otherwise they're bulls. Do but you know I only learned that like last year? No. Yeah, I had a freak out about like okay what is cattle and what are bulls and what are cows like what's the umbrella term <laughs> and 
I thought that cows was the umbrella term. And oh. I didn't know that was the female version. Yeah. That, yeah, it was like a big moment. <laughs> and I was like, how did I get to, to 30? And not to be know. fair, mate, it's not the most interesting fact in your life, though, is it? Like, oh, an- I mean, it's up there. Is it though? I, along with like that, I thought ducks didn't fly. What? I don't know. I don't know. I'm really book smart. I'm not street smart. <laughs> I don't think that's true. You I don't know this a- about me. <laughs> no, but I don't think that's a fair delineation. Like your random <laughs> facts of animals and their roles within their own like little genus <laughs> does not necessarily equate to any form of intelligence, street or book. But you know. Neuroscience has confirmed. I'm not as dumb as I thought I was. <laughs> yeah, look, again, a whole different topic. But look, um, yeah. into the entrepreneurial world and the startup space was... Was that by accident or did you go, <sighs> I want to move into business and look at kind of the anthropology behind disruption in industries? I think, I mean, we kind of probably have to go back a little bit to go forward. But I think what I realised was that my knowledge, as much as I could talk to you about a you know teleological account of history and how we got to now and what it meant and thesis and antithesis and all these nice academic terms like you know I needed to learn how to work mm. and I didn't really know how to do that like <laughs> interestingly enough can write a thesis also like <laughs> universities and I love them and I loved studying aren't actually training you how to work they're training academics and mm. there's this big gap particularly in Australia between your working life and your educational life I think places like the states you know for all their problems get this one a bit better yeah and that vocational training particularly in anthro and social so what was important to me was learning how to work and that is really what motivated the move into advertising and then later into management consulting yeah oh my gosh I needed to learn how so to work cool. <laughs> and make money because that was important because I had lots of debt <laughs> yeah so that's so interesting that that's kind of how that all started did you so that was all in London yeah all of that was in London so I was in London for on and off about eight years and what what kind of drove you to advertising first um, and then what led to the transition to management consulting? yeah but that's a bit of an interesting one so advertising was I mean advertising really is about psychology if you think about it it's mm-hmm. about getting people to be influenced in a way to do something that they don't know that they're doing in a way that they don't know they're being influenced wow <laughs> such a mouthful yeah well <laughs> advertising is an easier word yeah easier summary of that process <laughs> but what I mean by that is that you're I mean, people always talk about, well, brand advertising doesn't work. And actually what you don't realise is what you think of that brand is almost exactly what they want you to think of that brand. Yeah. And advertising is influence. It's influence and motion through any form of campaign or construction. And I always found that really interesting. And, you know, I guess, you know, everyone looks at Mad Men and they're like, wow, this is exactly my life, except (laughs) 30 years forward or 40 (laughs) years forward. But, yeah, I had a really good team. I had a bit of an interesting role. Like, I... I really was responsible for setting up an accelerator, which at that time we didn't really know that's what it was called. Mm-hmm. So we were looking at the way of changing the attribution model to advertising because you can only grow an account so much. So we were thinking, could we get into high growth sort of businesses early on by like scaling down our services and providing this thin slice of the wedge and then allowing them to have full access to an agency of our size but then really growing with us as an account. So they couldn't afford us at the time of growth, but if we got in earlier, they were on that lovely hockey stick curve that mm. were going to you know, become the next multi-million dollar business. Mm. And in many cases, we got that right. Wow. Which was very lucky. Like I, would, I remember doing a business case on Airbnb and saying, look, is this going to be a thing? Is this, <laughs> is this, yeah, like, wow. You know, should we even bother trying to BD these guys? Like, should we even look into something like, you know, peer-to-peer lending and all that sort of stuff, um, which we did and we had a client there and Airbnb is now a client. 
That's this is Manning Gottlieb. Yes, is yeah, this is oh, Amadie. Yeah, crazy. Yeah, and still is. And look, I loved that role. I loved my team. I was given great creative license, but some really important things came out of that. And that was number one: you don't have to know any, everything. Mm-hmm. And that was a really positive moment because I had spent most of my academic career and most of my schooling career <laughs> pretending I had to know everything. Yeah. Because that's what I think told. you know everything, but that's different. I definitely don't. <laughs> but <laughs> definitely don't. My goodness. But. Number two was that no one is too creative to read a spreadsheet. And this was really hammered home to me. And I have said it a lot, particularly when I went into that entrepreneurial world. Like, it doesn't matter if you're the best visionary in the world. It doesn't matter if you can see the future. It doesn't matter if you think you're up there with Elon Musk. If you can't commercialize your idea, mm. if you can't actually work out how it's going to make money, it's never going to work. Mm. So it doesn't matter how creative you can be. If you don't have, A, the skills to make that thing commercial that you can earn money and derive an income from it, or be people around you who can help you do that, it's not going to work. And it was a big kind of ego calling as well because you know I didn't have a business background, but I had to very quickly get very good at that. Mm-hmm. And while I don't have, or I'm not a chartered accountant, I can definitely build a business model. So that role really taught wow. me a lot of good stuff yeah. around like how to know what you know and then add some. Like yeah. know what you know and take comfort in that, but then continue to apply and expand yourself. Because if you only focus on what you know, how are you ever going to grow? Yeah. Oh my gosh. If that kind of That's makes sense. so early on to have had such a big revelation as well that carries you through. Yeah. It's kind of the rest of your roles. It, it helped, but good leadership help. And I was probably a bit of a nightmare to manage, to be honest, when I was younger. Like super ambitious, you know, really driven, workaholic, like very high standards. And therefore, yeah. you know, not maybe always the easiest to manage. But I had some very, you know, It's a nice managers. problem to have probably having someone that's too motivated. Like, yeah, but I also like annoying. very often. <laughs> I would have thought by, you know, by the seventh interruption of a different way of doing things probably annoying which is you know Shelly just do it just do it but but we could do it better and we could save more money just get it done you know like so it was was good it was a really good role um and yeah I had a good good fun there advertising as people know who's ever worked in agency is a lot of fun yeah I can imagine yeah and so was it you know what kind of encouraged you then to make an industry jump out of that Mm. role when you were you know learning so much and and discovering all these skills and realizations and building up such a good skill set yeah it got a bit complicated with my visa actually oh this is the primary motivation it's not actually that interesting so basically before I accepted the job I had got a job with Accenture Oh, so you'd gotten that Yeah, job and then Accenture, because they're massive, delayed my start date by almost two years. <gasps> For you to take the role? Yeah. Oh. So I was like, okay, well, i am still got my normal visa. And then this opportunity came up and I thought, well, I'll stay in London and work on this role. And then oh. it was a bit of a cruel irony because I'd actually really fallen in love with the role. And when I had to resign, I was just this emotional wreck. I was so young and I felt like I had been cheating on my current <laughs> job like yeah. with this other like mystery job and... You know, I'd learnt all this stuff and I didn't want to move, but, you know, that's just kind of how it worked. And then into the big bad world of management consulting. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Crazy. Up there. And that was a two-year stint then at Accenture before you moved back to Melbourne? Yes, two-year stint was all I needed. (laughs) And, I mean, management consulting is an incredible, incredible, you know, job to go into that teaches you everything about business inside Mm. and out. Spreadsheets, forecasting, modeling, everything, data, Mm. interpreting things, but is like crazy hours, incredibly demanding, lots of travel. I imagine that was a huge learning curve as well. Did you, so obviously having lined up the job before you got there, Mm. did you, was that part of a transition into business? Was that something that you did for that or was it just 
because you wanted to be equipped as a management consultant or? Um, I think I was just like, what am I good at? Yeah. You know, and a lot of the things that I guess you could say good at, inverted commas, because I don't think you're ever perfect at anything, were lined up with that position. Um, and I guess the UK have a very different approach to vocational training. And what I mean by that is that, you know, you can't study journalism. There isn't a journalist degree. Mm-hmm. You study English literature. So they're much more broad stroke. So yeah. they care about your marks and what you had got versus what you actually did and in Australia I found it quite frustrating because they were focused on well you didn't do journalism so therefore you can't write now yes there's definitely vocations of technical things I didn't do but that didn't mean I wasn't equipped for the roles that I was applying for so I actually found I had more freedom and I knew more people in London which is what motivated all of that (laughs) so that was that and I think I just always thought look it can't hurt it's going to teach me how to work it did it taught me a lot of other things as well <laughs> about what I don't like. But, you know, it is an incredible training ground for skills and capability. It is unforgiving. It is relentless. Mm-hmm. It is, goodness, I don't even know how to sometimes summarise my experience there because I probably can't remember half of it because it's yeah. all a blur from lack of sleep <laughs> and <woman>. overworking. But <laughs> I feel like it is an in and out kind of job like a lot of people for some people (laughs) yeah yeah I mean you go so hard but you learn at the steepest learning curve yeah and then you're like I need to survive so I'm getting out now (laughs) yeah yeah pretty much and yeah like it it really did take its toll but it really caused some strong inflection points in my life about what I wanted and what I didn't want and also who I am and who I am not Mm. and that you know, as much as those, I'm so grateful for those lessons, they did not come easily, nor were they learnt easily. Mm. And I think that's the beauty of the big life lessons is that they're yeah. always born out of some kind of discomfort or challenge or disruption mm. in... Midlife crisis, yeah. quarter life crisis, yeah, quarter life you know, crisis, all those travel, things. Like it's, yep. it's, you don't, it, when you're cruising along, you're not really going to, you know, fall upon some kind of big life revelation, which is... Yeah, unlikely. Yeah, I mean, unlikely. you might, you might, but I think... I think it runs into you, but yeah. I don't think you fall upon it, yeah. Yeah, I think it's in those really tough times that you do, you do a lot more self-reflection and analysis and they, they foster um, thinking that you don't normally do on a on a macro scale about yeah. what you like and who you are. And that's why I love chatting to you because your brain <laughs> works at that level all the time, which is the bit uh, that sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> but this, I'm, I'm so excited to talk to you about the, the way, like the brainy stuff behind finding your path, because mm. I think there's a lot more brain processes behind it that we don't, you know, we just yeah. kind of think the universe, blah, blah, blah. but I'm like, it's so interesting that you having a social science background and knowing all the anthropology and the neuroscience behind it, looking back at your own path must be like, yeah. I, I see what, I see what was happening there. Like, a little bit. But then again, it's always that like, you know, I'm looking through the filter of knowledge I have now projecting onto the past. So it's always going to be a bit of a warped view. And I think it's very easy for us to validate any opinion we want by sticking together data that we want. Mm. Now, this is why you can have two people that see the situation completely differently Mm. and therefore point at the same data but induce or infer something differently from it. And the reason for saying that without sounding too much like an academic idiot is, (laughs) you know, it's always really easy to see the story we want to see or to tell the self the story we want to tell. And that's a beauty thing about life, but it's also a massive curse about life. Mm. So we can tell ourselves a story where the victor and the victim, regardless, the things still happen. Now, because I'm more of that optimist and maybe that 19-year-old self is still in there somewhere, (laughs) you know, I see that as a huge opportunity. And understanding those processes behind it 
also just gives you once you understand it great comfort in that your brain is actually 110 million percent on your side Mm. and there's a lot of stuff out there particularly in the coaching space you know where there's quite these harsh conversations that I always not always because that's unfair but often don't agree with about you know your brain doesn't want you to be happy your brain doesn't want you you know your stress is doing this and it's a quite a blame thing Mm. but really everything that your brain does is for your benefit number one thing it wants you to do is be alive and Mm. the number one thing it wants you to do is be happy really overall it doesn't want you to be so happy that you're not aware of dangers around you because that's not good either (laughs) but it, it fundamentally doesn't want you to suffer and so we have these reflection points we have something called metacognition which is thinking about our own thinking and ability to reflect we have the ability to do that any given moment is it always the default in stressful situations absolutely not because staying alive is the most important thing but we have it and change starts with being conscious Mm. the conscious choice to change is half the battle so if you've already decided i want to do something differently you're already halfway there so if all it takes is for you to stop and reflect and go why am i in this situation what don't i want from this how am i going to do it differently you've already kind of started to lay the map out and the great thing about your brain is your brain then goes okay now we're going a different way i'm going to get on board with that so you kind of have the ability to change at any given moment, but it's only really happens when you want it to. I don't think I answered your question at all there. Though. No, Sorry. but you answered so many other questions. That, I have. <laughs> that is the very intellectual way of saying that you can seize your yay at any time. I just made 100%. it a really That's childlike exactly what I said. kind of way to say it. <laughs> no, 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 no. So this, you can see why Shelley fascinates me and I just <laughs> get so lit up and excited about like I nerd out over the, the stuff that she just has in her brain about her brains. <laughs> so, I mean, going from management consulting, there's been obviously lots of different things come up in between. Mm. Like you've qualified as a fitness instructor yeah. in between. You've been yeah. to Melbourne. You've done, you know, um, you've come back and worked on a lot of different innovation projects and kind of continued that business theme as well Mm. and then ended up founding Vite which is your own coaching company so you're a coach you're studying what else have you done you've done entrepreneurship (laughs) you've done fundamentals of neuroscience at Harvard and now you are also on top of all of those things (laughs) on top of running your own business having done all these different chapters uh, also studying a master's of neuroscience at King's College in London don't know how (laughs) crazy crazy to be honest (laughs) so tell us how you ended up making the shift from kind of working on business, well, firstly, moving back from London, Mm. which is a big step in itself. Yeah, it was massive. And then moving into more business innovation strategy roles Mm. and from that into starting your own, like branching off into (laughs) into your own business and then finding neuroscience as like your thing. Yeah, I mean, there's probably two ways to answer that because it's quite a meaty process and I don't want to bore anybody else with my long answers, so I'll try and keep it clear. It's the fascinating part, I think, (laughs) is how people come across. You didn't start. Like, what I love so much is rarely do people go, yeah, I'm studying, I'm I'm a coach. I started to be a coach. I love neuroscience. I started to do neuroscience. You know, it's like (laughs) I actually started off like 55 stages ago. Yeah. And they've all been different. And people need to hear that because I think they think they need to find their thing straight away. No. 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 And look, there's a lot of research around that about like, you know, people that actually get their first career move right 
in one step are only about 5% of people. And unfortunately mm. for those people, it tends to be they're actually in the category of being apathetic yeah. and not driven. So I'm not saying if you always wanted to be a doctor and now you're a doctor, you're in that camp. No, I'm yeah. just more saying So that, apathetic, those doctors <clears throat> out there. You know, the modern career doesn't look like that. You're predicted to have 12 to 15 careers in your lifetime. Mm. You know, that's not jobs, that's careers. And mm. that's just the nature of automation and the changing nature of work what we call the fourth industrial revolution like that is going to change and I think particularly for people in their mid-20s to the mid-30s we have a big fear or misconception about oh something's wrong with me because I'm changing all the time it's not it is just the environment in which we live and the fact that you want to do other things is actually a really good way to future-proof your skill set because if mm. you get too disciplined and too technical these days, it's actually You're not future-proofing. Yeah. yeah, it's it's not future-proofing what you know will become disrupted at some point in some way by technology, which we already know. But that's more of an innovation conversation. <laughs> so, how you did I get so many conversations <laughs> with Shelley? <laughs> so many tangents. My God. Um, so, how did I get from what was the question? So it was pretty much the big shift from you know management consulting in London and then yeah. home and then business innovation strategy and then fitness yeah <laughs> fitness coach qualification all the way to Harvard and King's College neuroscience yeah so, and running your own business <laughs> and coaching and doing all the things all that the you things. do now so I guess the transition from management consulting was the realization that I didn't want to be a management consultant anymore mm. and actually just because you can do something doesn't mean you should but <gasps> oh my the most wise statement anyone ever says. Because I think there's so much should. If you're good so at something, much should. it's like, Should's oh. a big watch out word. If oh. you hear should, might, maybe, probably, because, might, all those like maybe, possibly, you know, they're basically neuromarkers that you're about to go down a rabbit warren. Mm. And your future projecting on something that you think others want of you or that you think you want of yourself based on a social precondition versus what you actually want. Now, they're big, like, as soon as I hear those words in my mind, I'm like, hang on a minute stop Mm. metacognition need to stop and reflect (laughs) what is going on here and I think what I discovered you know I went from analyst to manager in two years and I can't explain to you how hard that process was but how much I had ended up being a person that I didn't want to be yeah and just because I could just because I was able to do it and there were many times that I wasn't able I royally screwed up a lot of things along the way and I've worked for some people who would probably attest that I am not the nice person, which people make me out to be now, which I think would be I fair. I can't imagine that. Well, it's pretty stressed. <laughs> yeah. you know, you, Stress you, can do funny things to a person. 100%. But you mirror the environment around you. And what I realised was as much as I was, you know, maybe impressed by people who were, uh, who were my leaders, you know, who were the people at the spearheading my um, divisions within consulting, I didn't want to be them. And yeah. I didn't want their life. I didn't want their pressure. I didn't want their anxiety. And I didn't want their anxious overachieving personality. And that's what management consultants are. They are mm. anxious overachievers. And I can say that because I am one. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I kind of identify with that a little yeah, bit. Similar firms, <laughs> yeah, really similar to law firms. Really similar to law firms, right? Yeah. Like they keep you on this carrot string where you're never really good enough, even though your good enough is better than most people's good enough. And at the point of consulting, I'd realized that what I thought I wanted, you know, I got to the top of the mountain, I looked around and I was really unhappy. Mm. And I was like, this actually doesn't make me happy. This doesn't light me up. I'm not doing what I'm passionate about. And so I really had to go through this self-discovery process of what am I passionate about? And it all came back to the central tenant I talked about before. It's people. Mm. I love people. I know they do awful things, but I don't truly believe that anyone is bad. I don't believe you're born bad. Your brain is plastic. It can change. And it's plastic until you die. 
Mm. Not until you're a certain age, not until you're a certain place, not until you're a certain weight or height or age or whatever, you can change. And so if people are born into this world, you know, with the same relative amount of capability, even if they're neurologically different, you can still change and be what you need to be. So it all comes down to what you give yourself and what you tell yourself, because the only thinker in your mind is you. So I can tell the story where I screwed things up and how I was a failure, but I can also tell the story of how I stood on top of that failing and became a victor of that situation. And so, you know, at that point of looking at management consultant, I could tell myself both stories. But what I had realized was that my anxiety was mental. Like I wasn't actually aware of how anxious at times I was. And Mm. there are periods of that time that I cannot recall because my memory is so modified by the amount of anxiety that was going on in my life. So Mm. my ability to consolidate my memories, a process of neurogenesis and pruning was basically affected by the amount of cortisol, one of your stress hormones that was cruising around in my head. And at that point I went, this is not important. I I need to go back to Australia, I need to reset and I need to work out what's really important to me because as much as I can do this job, as much as I'm technically kind of good at it, I don't like who I have to be to be good at it. Now that's not everyone in consulting, that's just my story. Because you do so many different things, people have really different experiences. Mm. And there's lots of great people, some of her still my closest friends who are in consulting. But for me, it just like, it was a coat that didn't fit right. It looked good, kind of, at times, but it just didn't work overall. And so I needed to sort of take it off and come home. and. If you're going through that kind of exploratory process, you know, you need to be around grounding things and things that mean something to you. And so that plus a few personal circumstances at home meant it was time. Time to come home. (laughs) It took a long process. It was like a five-month deliberation. But, yeah, it was time to come home and and really start again and focus not only on my career, which had preoccupied all of my, you know, postgraduate work or all of my post-study work and just – who do I want to be independent of a title of my job? Because you are not your job. We put so much status in the Western world on what we do, not who we are. And who you are actually defines what you do and how you do it. And we get those very confused a lot of the time. Like, You're like an ad for this podcast. <laughs> that, is like, that is the whole reason why I want to do this is because yeah. of bringing back out the person that we are when we're not our title and touched so like poignantly on the difference between what looks successful and what feels good mm, and so you different. were at the pinnacle of everything you thought that you could want and yeah. it doesn't and it didn't make you happy and it not might make some people happy but I think we get very very distracted by the shiny things that Huge society thing. is like whoa you should you're made like you're yeah. done you're a, you're a manager like you don't need anything yeah. else yeah massively it's interesting that you you do get to the point where you can choose that or you could choose to go right back to the beginning and the mm. beginning was actually preferable yeah. to the, the top of the mountain. 100%. I think it was about coming back to, I guess, what motivated you to climb the mountain to begin with. And, yeah. you know, you've got to go back and look at that. You know, what motivated me? Was it the feeling of feeling good or was it the feeling of what I should do? And it was what I should do. Now, I do believe you have to do the things that you have to do until you can do the things that you want to do. Yes. Amazing quote. So I don't know if anyone else said that. I'm sorry. I should be referencing <laughs> them. But it is a big one. Right. And, you know, I think there's a lot of glory about I want this instantaneously or I want this influencer lifestyle. I want to travel the world and Mm. do what I want and be passionate. And now there's some people that can do that first time off the bat. But I guarantee you there are a lot of support networks that you are not seeing behind Instagram that are making that happen. Of course. And I equally know that learning how to work is an incredibly important skill. And what I mean by that is, you know, you should never be at the point where 
you can't learn or acquire a new skill because it's beneath you or it's above you. You are always capable of doing it. Mm -hmm. Now, you might not be the best at it, but you shouldn't get to a point, particularly as an entrepreneur, where you're having to outsource so many things and capabilities in your business that you don't even understand your business well enough at the fundamental basis. And management consulting definitely taught me that. It did set up my course for running you know, our own business eventually in quite a good way. Mm. It, it helped as yeah. much as I've got the scar <laughs> tissue to show it. It yeah. helped. <laughs> wow. And so then what kind of, I mean, obviously now just listening to you speak, I don't think anyone would question that you're just made to coach people <laughs> to like live their best life and, and, and perform to their best capability and, and kind of break down. I mean, hearing you speak in Fiji about just leadership but not leadership that you think not leadership as in literally just being a manager but leadership mm. in like leading your own path mm. and breaking down your obstacles and understanding the processes that your brain is going through like how did you get to a point where you knew that that was what you wanted to deliver to people mm. how did you turn that into a business how did you choose <laughs> the name and then obviously also backing yourself up with the qualifications like now finishing yeah. your master's in neuroscience like neuroscience is something that you speak as if you've been studying it for your whole life oh my gosh no but talk to talk to someone who's an actual doctor of neuroscience like they'll blow your mind i know so little in comparison i can guarantee you that <laughs> but you know moving into that how did you make that mm. transition how did you decide to you know go and do the harvard course and then yeah and then become a coach because you've kind of gone from working in big institutions to smaller and smaller businesses mm. and then into just out on your own like you're putting yeah. yourself out there and coaching is also something that it, it kind of subtly implies that you're going to impart some kind of wisdom yeah. and, and there's a lot of you know there's a lot of self-doubt when you first start out doing mm, something like massively. that so how did you make that transition and then kind of come into your own the way that you have mm. um probably a longer answer but i'll try and make it succinct <laughs> um i think one thing which was really clear was coming back to what is the foundation and people like coaching to me never felt like work. And I think coaching has a bit of a like random cloud around it, particularly in Australia, but mm. all you're doing with coaching is helping somebody understand what they already know within themselves. What I mean by that is you are not telling them anything they don't already know on some level. They just might not be conscious of it. Mm. And I say that a lot to the clients that I work with, like, I am coaching you to enact your potential. I'm not coaching you because I know more about you than you know about you. You are always the expert in you. <laughs> I will never know what goes on inside your head, nor do I need to. You're just facilitating. Exactly. And yeah. you're facilitating a transition. Success to me is using your talents and abilities to help in some way, in some form of service. And when I think about what made me happiest, because that's important as well, it's not you know complete... I mean, nothing's completely benevolent, but that idea of am I helping, am I feeling good when I'm helping, you know, coaching to me was a really obvious position because I just wanted to help people. It pains me so much to see that people can't see what other people see in them. Oh, I know. It's just that, <laughs> you know, which is good and bad at sometimes, but perspective is a bit of an interesting thing. You know, you can shift your view on yourself however you want it to be shifted but in the same way that that can be an incredibly enabling thing it can be an incredibly destructive thing your mind is a weapon and you can either be used for good or for bad and knowing that one conversation you know one coaching course one coaching conversation you know years of coaching could help you 
take that weapon and use it as your greatest form of catalyst for what you needed to do in your life why wouldn't you want to do that absolutely so I was kind of like well this is obvious I should be doing this but what I also found was that it's quite fluffy it's an underregulated <laughs> it industry. Is. And, and it's vague, you know, coach, so what does that mean? Vague. So vague. Because people are like, are you going to like guru me? Are you yeah. like looking into a ball? Like, are you going to make me do push Am I crying? Yeah, or... like, <laughs> will there be tears? And I think the thing about coaching is it's not therapy. You know, yeah. therapy definitely serves a point in, in life. And we need therapists of all descriptions on spiritual all the way to medical. Mm-hmm. But coaching is about there's nothing wrong with you. Right. But you don't turn up to a basketball game thinking, oh, I've never played basketball before. I'm just going to nail it. Yeah. Michael Jordan, eat your heart out. Like yeah. me and LeBron, best mates because I've watched him on YouTube. Right. <laughs> yeah. So if you think about it, your coach is just that enabler of your life and it's unique to you and they understand what you want to get out of it. But they're never going to tell you you need to do these things. Yeah. They are going to help you unearth what you already know within yourself. And I think, you know, if I think about myself, the joy that I'd had throughout my career was when I was able to do that I've been doing it for businesses and problems but what I really actually realized is I was doing it for people who worked in businesses and on problems okay so you were kind of like I guess in your role with startups and accelerators and small businesses you were already kind of doing that and realized I should just do this I'm good at it like this is my thing (laughs) exactly and I think if I think about all the advice that I was giving to founders and working in accelerators and even on the investment side, you know, it wasn't, yes, there's numbers and spreadsheets, but what I was working with is people and any good investor will tell you what they invest in is people. Yeah. So it's this weird irony for all this like new age technology and, you know, progressive things that are going to change the world. It all still comes down to people. And the only thing you can actually control is your own mind. So we think that we have to be influenced or think that we have to control externally. Actually, if you've got any hope of influencing externally, you have to influence internally first. And if you haven't sorted out your own mind, you're going to have very little chance of sorting out anything or inventing anything new outside in the world. So it kind of comes full circle to me. Like Mm. it is a bit of a reinforcing prophecy, but I guess that's the nature of how I view it. Mm. But to me, it was stuff that I had been doing already. So then I was like, okay, well, I'm not in the fluffy cowboy camp because yeah. that's not really... Cow person. I'm, yeah, cow person, sorry. <laughs> cow person. Didn't you know, expect that to come up again, but there you go. Sorry, cow person. Um, <laughs> it seems appropriate considering the month we yep, are in. Yep, yep. Um, but I think it was about, you know, get qualified. Like, just because you think you might be good at something, you know, get qualified. And like I said, I'm not cool, right? Like, I'm not, <laughs> you know, you I was are. like, I need to get qualified. And my whole, you know, risk-adverse management consultant life, despite hanging out in the entrepreneurial ecosystem, had told me, get qualified. Yeah. And so that's what really propelled. But what I wanted to do, and it probably comes from my social science days, like social scientists and neuroscientists don't really get on. There is, oh. well, I... I'm okay, generalizing. One's like hardwired science and yeah, one's and the other like one's like observation. So neuroscientists always joke that social scientists don't know what brains are. Okay. So <laughs> I see that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there's it's just different <laughs> yeah. ways of approach, approaching the same problem. But what I realized was that as soon as I start talking to people about science, it's a conversation about their brain. And it's not a conversation about subjective opinion. Now, science by nature, just so everyone knows, is subjective opinion, which is why we scrutinize it so much and why research must be scrutinized. Like even amongst, you know, neuroscientists, there's still a debate about consciousness and what it is. So yeah, right. So you can imagine how difficult this gets to prove, but what's important, what was important to me was that I became fascinated as I went through my coaching qualifications with a focus on neuroscience was 
how has nobody told us this? Yeah. How is it that the brain is the thing that you own? You are the only thinker in your own mind. You are the only person that can ever influence it. It's like the most complicated piece of IKEA furniture you're ever going to get, and nobody gets a manual. <laughs> yeah. What is up with that? Why is it that way? But yet we, the only people that get to understand it are scientists, but the only people that own it are you. And yet, if and you, it affects everything you do, your entire life. In fact, from the moment you breathe to the moment you don't. And so I just thought, this is ridiculous. Like, we have to give people a blueprint. We we owe it to people to give them the basic knowledge of how they are wired, to know how to influence themselves, to know how to change themselves. Mm. And if we gave everybody that, if we gave everybody the knowledge, gave everybody what they needed, understood what humans actually needed to thrive as a species, both in a social setting and in a scientific setting, wouldn't we then course correct many of the problems we see today? Oh, my God. Shall I just solve the mystery of life? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm coming from a people are inherently good, you know, non-Hobbesian view of the world where we don't want to all kill each other and take over power. But, you know... Yeah, we it, could solve some fundamental problems if people just understood their own well, brains a little bit better. 100%. You know, <laughs> what you see out in the world is what you project out into the world. The world is a reflection of what you think and feel about the world. That's why we can all live in the world but all see the world differently. So <laughs> my brain is working so hard. <laughs> and I love that you already knew all this stuff and then we're like, you know what? I'm going to go and do a master's <laughs> in neuroscience. Oh, yeah, that master's. But this is why you are one of the most fascinating humans. And I've spent like 45 minutes on the first section because you're so interesting. So just before we move on to the next section, as a coach with a focus on neuroscience mm. and now a master of neuroscience, to be, to be, to be. What are some of the the key things that in your? So I know you do kind of organizational coaching, mm-hmm. but also smaller group coaching yeah. and individual coaching. In any context, what are kind of the key messages that you start with, mm. just to kind of flick on a light of like mm. this is the control you have over your brain yeah like a fiji like the key things that you kind of awoke everyone in the room to <laughs> we were just like what is this woman who is this crazy lady no <laughs> yeah well, a little bit but like <laughs> why is she so amazing you know uh, what would you impart in this like small segment of time that you have to like you know oh <laughs> In terms of what we do, the most important thing is, number one, understanding your brain. So Mm -hmm. we talk people through their conscious and their unconscious mind, their prefrontal cortex, their limbic system. Look, there are many other systems at play, but we talk through the fundamentals that we know of what influences behavior. And we generally, if we're working with an organization, we need to work with an outcome. So we do not come in and just talk about people. We're not just HR. We talk about strategy, growth, and therefore how your people are going to grow to achieve your strategy. Mm -hmm. Because I'm not really interested in helping your people if there is no tangible outcome to it. Why? Because it's not important. Yeah. Because people won't change unless they can see a clear reason why. If you want someone to turn an insight, a gamma wave, big surge of energy from the left and right hemisphere, an insight, into action, you need to put it into context. And if you don't have the strategy of a context in a business, why is somebody going to change? That's what basically causes or fosters a process called semantic processing where we actually change where we make our synaptic connections our little ideas coming together where we force that change to happen so the work we do in organizations is very focused on that i'm not really interested in doing soft and fluffy let's just talk about our feelings like (laughs) i will do that yeah but that's not going to drive your bottom line nor and without being too crude drive profit Mm. you know unless i'm working with a non-for-profit where that is the brief 
all for-profit work needs to tie into strategy because, and how yeah, it's going to happen yeah. massively. Yeah. And on the individual level and the group level, it's kind of the same, except we do pillars of a topic. So whether or not we're talking about, well, what are the tools in life? What are the things that are important in life? So there's self, there's job, there's relationships, and there's really any other areas within self that you can break down. So everything we do has a neuroscience of lens. And in Fiji, it was the neuroscience of leadership. Mm. So we have the neuroscience of confidence, the neuroscience of communication, of influence, you know, of conflict, of team building. Why do these things matter? What is the science behind that happens when we get into conflict? And if we know the science of what causes the reaction of conflict, we can use the same science to remedy it, the same science to bring back to the point of solution and bring back to the point of connection. So if we know these things are just normal and neurological, we can stop feeling bad about feeling because we often feel bad about feeling. We think when we feel there is something wrong with us and you know, Brene Brown has done an incredible amount of work on this. Feeling is a normal neurological reaction. If you didn't feel, that is more concerning than yeah. you know, like That is more worrying. And so the coaching conversation is really about that. It all, all centers on how do I get from where I am to where I wanna be? And how do we as a coach impart any knowledge that already exists inside of you through our processes and tools and strategies to get you to perform those processes on yourself? So what we call this is neuroplastic surgery. Mm. (laughs) I love that. You are the surgeon. You're the only person (laughs) with the scalpel. What are you going to cut and hack? What processes are you going to remove from your brain? What negative thoughts? What stories you've been telling yourself? How are you going to change that? How are you going to change the channel or change the filter? You know, we talked about filters Mm. and filtering within um, the presentation in Fiji. And if you know that you're the neurosurgeon or the neuroplastic surgeon of your mind, because you're the only person that can physically change your mind, your ability to create something now becomes much more liberated versus I am stuck in this position. Mm. And I'm a reactor to something rather than I'm the, I'm the person controlling Mm. the outcome. Nothing out there or anyone out there or anything in any way can make you feel anything in here being your mind without your permission first. Yes, there are some natural responses which occur, but we have a braking system. Our prefrontal cortex, which is part of our neocortex, which is what makes us the most evolved species on the planet, has a braking system. Mm. We often don't use it, but it's there. And so knowing that nothing out there can actually happen to you inside or nothing inside your brain can actually change without you giving it permission to do so in terms of conscious thought, you're always going to be in control. Yet we don't get told this, Mm. which is weird, right? (laughs) so weird. (laughs) Why wouldn't you tell people that? And I'm sure conspiracy theorists have their own reasons and the man (laughs) and whatever. But fundamentally, we know this on some level, right? Because we do it. Mm. So the coaching conversation is really about how do we help you get from where you are to where you want to be to achieve the things that you want to achieve, to live the life in the way that you want to live it. But most importantly, how do I get you to realize that the scalpel is in your own hand and I'm a facilitator to the point that you don't need me. I'll help you at a point in time, but I want you to get to a point where you know that you have the tools and the strategies and all the capability mechanisms and all the coping mechanisms you need to go out and be you. Because I can't be you. Mm. No one else can be you, in fact. Mm. And it is a crime if you will try and be anybody else but yourself. I'm just like... 
exploding all over again. This is amazing. <laughs> how valuable. Everyone just appreciate how much value we just got out of that. Seriously. Oh my gosh. So this leads really nicely into the next segment, which is Natia, which is all mm. the stuff that kind of in your own personal <laughs> journey gets in your way. But one of the questions that's burning so brightly for me mm. right now is, is it challenging having this heightened level of awareness, metacognition, <laughs> Which we all have. Which we Not all just have. Me. <laughs> but particularly with yours being honed in on the neuroscience mm. behind things, are you harder on yourself when you have reactions that you're not controlling, you know what I mean? Like sometimes when we feel mm. sad or we feel self-doubt or we do fall into a trap, mm. sometimes you just want to wallow and you don't want to pull yourself out of it and you don't mm. want to re- remind yourself that you do have control over your blah, 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 blah. <laughs> but because you know a lot mm. more of the knowledge behind it, are you harder on yourself because you, like do you, I always think of this about psychologists, do you psychoanalyze yourself <laughs> because you know this all? Like um, are you coaching yourself all the time going, Charlie, you shouldn't be blah, 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 blah. Um, no, actually. Amazing. So <laughs> let me tell you why that response is a no. So before I had this knowledge, the answer was definitely yes. Before you had the knowledge? Yeah, the reason being because you have no sense of awareness of what is inverted commas normal. True. So you think it's just you. You think you're the only person who ever feels bad about themselves or you think you're the only person who ever judges yourself. But what you realize when you study this and extrapolate up is that this is normal. So you kind of double guess yourself less. I would say less because yeah. it's human, right? Wow. It, you know, cause I can just go, hang on a minute. That's just me being human, having a normal human experience in a normal human way. And I think it's really important here to call out as well. If I feel sad, I'm not like, ah, I must instantly feel happy again. <laughs> No, like I go, I'm feeling sad. So I'm just... So I'm just sad and that's okay. Or I'm just feeling this because... And there's a big debate about this, but there is one school of camp which says you have free won't, not free will. And it comes from a gentleman called Benjamin Libet. And what he has discovered or what he and his team discovered, other scientists have repeated it, but that is just the nature of science, is that everything you think and feel happens unconsciously first so to then judge an unconscious thought which happens unconsciously first to then judge it when you're conscious of it is like judging oxygen <laughs> yeah it's just like it's like judging a cloud like oh my god you're so cloudy today yes it's being a cloud like you, you know, i get cloudy and i'm not a cloud but that's cool yeah totally and i think you know this is what i mean by we are more Often the most harshest, nastiest, cruelest conversations we have with people are actually inside our own mind and people being ourselves. We are often our own harshest critic. But very simply, if you wouldn't say it to your best friend, why why you say say it it to yourself? Yeah. And I think – so my answer is no because I realize that I'm human and that's what I sort of said at the beginning about humility. Like it doesn't matter how, you know, inverted commas successful or unsuccessful I am. This is a nature and a byproduct of being human. And as long as I continue to feel good, bad, ugly, indifferent, otherwise I'm human Mm. and nothing out there changes that neurological reaction within. So Mm. knowing that those reactions occur and often I can't control them. I'm much more forgiving of when they emerge and probably a little bit more scientific. Like, Oh, that's interesting. Oh yeah. Where did that come what? from? Where's that connected to? And maybe in that <laughs> regard, I would psychoanalyze a little yeah. bit more, but I've probably, I have always been a deep thinker. I've always yeah. been quite 
I mean, people say stoic, but it's technically Epicurean, but that's a different conversation. <laughs> so I'm quite like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've always been very reflective and a deeper thinker, like despite being quite extroverted. And I think people, people love to classify, are you extroverted or introverted? And, you know, we're all both. We're all on yeah, the spectrum one's somewhere. One's just more dominant than the other, but there, we yeah. all have features of both. Hugely. But mm. even to me, I can't be extroverted without my introverted moments. Mm. You know, I, I need, personally, I need both. Mm. But I've always been a bit of that dichotomy, I guess. Mm. What about Brenton? Does he ever get yeah. like, stop neurosciencing me? <laughs> you know oh, what I mean? Is he ever like, this is Shelley's husband, by the way. The Does he ever man. get like, can you just stop knowing all the things that are going on in my uh, brain? <laughs> because I totally would. <laughs> I'd be like, stop uh, knowing all the things. I think... He's uh, probably used to it. It Bec- is one very endearing part of you. <laughs> Probably, maybe. But any strength overplayed becomes a weakness. So, <laughs> um, look, I think it is part of who I am. And so, you know, knowing that we love each other for who we are. But then again, at the same time, you know, I'm, I'm human with him. I don't have it all together all the time. You know, yeah, he's not a client. He sees the side of Yeah, him. and no one has it together all the time. And I guess the difference is, you know, for me, these tools which I use and those which I impart to others is that, you know, I'm never going to take away the highs and the lows. I'm just going to make you realize or give you the tools and capabilities that the highs won't be so like high, high mm. and the lows won't be so low, low, mm. you know, which is probably better for everyone yeah. if we're not so extreme spectrum all the time. Yeah. And I think, but you know, the world we live in can be quite like that. You know, we're either yeah. like, you know, body shaming someone who's like ridiculously thin or body shaming someone who's ridiculously large, forgetting that most people live in the middle, knowing that both of them are beautiful, but shaming them in different ways. Mm. Like it's it's this weird position that we often are in as humans and particularly with social media, that variance is, in, is increasing. But, you know, to answer your question about Brenton, I mean, there's kind of two ways I can answer this. <laughs> But the first way is... Should we call him? Yeah. Look, number one, ask him, right? Because he's smart enough to think for himself. I think number two is that, like, you know, you any practitioner takes off their practitioner's coat when they're at home being Yeah, there. true. And what I also respect is that just because I can see it in a way that he can't, it doesn't necessarily mean I'm right. Yeah. And that's true of everything, really. So true. And perfect segue to taking off the coach <laughs> neuroscience hat, <laughs> yes. coat, clothing, whatever it is. <laughs> Many attire that I wear. Yeah. <laughs> that leads to play TA. Yes. So again, I wonder if you ever psychoanalyze your own like downtime and on time. Like you're <laughs> kind of analyzing what your brain's doing. But the main question here is just who is Shelly when you're not being a coach, mm. when you're not knowing about neuroscience, when you're not analyzing human behavior and when you're not being successful and being a learner or a doer or a whatever. You know, I think where Agapi said in mm. our episode in Fiji, you know, she was like, we're human beings, not human doings. Yeah, usually. But we don't leave much space these days for just being yeah. and just existing and all for like pursuing the things that light us up that aren't vocational or educational. Yeah. So do you leave any time for yourself to just kind of flake out and play and be, yeah. you know, let your inner child back out again? And also, do you have any neuroscience insights on that state of mind? Of play? Yeah. Uh, yes, is the short answer. Um, if, would you like me to answer that first? <laughs> any order that comes out. Um. So yes to play, play an adult play, and that's not as creepy or as dirty as it sounds. I did just talk about you yeah. taking off your clothes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. But um, so there's an Estonian neuroscientist called Zach Prasip, and he argues that play, 
adult play, which is similar to child play, but in an adult setting, it's as important to a healthy brain as food, sleep and exercise. So his doctrine is actually that play is important and play is anything from swinging on a swing to doing a puzzle to, you know, rolling around the floor with your kids to running around in the park to with your dog. You know, play is anything that there is no measurement of success or outcome that you were trying to achieve. You're just in the moment. Oh, my God. That is like actual scientific evidence. Yeah. <laughs> Evidence-based practice for the CCA concept. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, we can send. Oh, yeah. I won't send you the report. It's really boring. I'll send you the cliff notes. Uh, no, that's unfortunate. Zach. he he's a very interesting man. But I was alert. I'm used to reading long. This is long, not interesting. Verbose. <laughs> that at least is legible in some ways. This is like I don't know. Academic science journal. Sorry to all my scientists. Like, yeah. But that's fascinating. I mean, isn't it just? Doesn't it just blow your mind that play? actually enhances your performance like your ability to yeah. be alive and happy hugely and hugely plays plays a really important thing i always say to and this is something i talk about a lot with the people that we work with where is joy in your life mm. who is joy and where is she mm. right where does she exist in your life because if you have no joy what is the point mm. now joy is not i hit my kpis this quarter or like you know I bought this handbag like that is elevation that is something that's associated with worth and status and they're different because you're now putting the attribute of value and joy on something outside of yourself joy is when am I comfortable in a flow state in something that makes me happy with no concept almost of like when I have to be somewhere or time and do something I literally explain to people what play day, play TA is by saying what makes you forget what time it is. Yeah. I mean, that is a flow state. Like you're in this beautiful um, alpha wave and like a lovely long brain wave where you lose track of time and your brain's just in its own little structure. But play is also, you know, it releases a lot of your happy hormones. It pushes out a lot of your dopamine and your serotonin mm. and your oxytocin. I mean, they're all the elixirs of love, but there's a very similar connection. Like mm. for me, joy is really important, but scheduling joy if anything's going to fall off right joy is going to be the first thing so what i try to do is weave it into things that i already do Mm. um so a lot of my exercise ends up being like playful stuff like it's all monkey bars or it's (laughs) you know it's like i'll exercise in a playground if i can't quickly get to the gym in time i mean the thing that has brought back joy for me has been going back to what i originally started with joyful and that is music Yes. So music's a bit of a weird one. Like music's actually the only thing that lights up every area of the brain when it's playing. Really? Yeah. Like, I mean, there's, there's always people who argue against this, but there's a lot of evidence. Music's a bit of a... I feel like it's got some mystical... Yeah, I mean, like... and we study this a lot. So like, why do, you know, hunters and gatherers, why do soldiers or troops whistle when they're scared? Is that mm. something we learned or is it innate? Because we've been hunting together for a long time as a species. So, you know, why do we play rhythm? Why do we tap when we're nervous? All these, all these sorts of things, right? But for me, music is... Because my music, my music is being a vocalist. So you can't be anywhere else but in that moment. Mm. Yes, you're thinking potentially about what's coming next, but all you have to do, all you, all you can do is focus on that moment. And so joy, to me is you know being musical for the sake of being musical not because I'm getting assessed for it and the reason I walked away from music was that I had lost so much of my joy because I was you know getting told off of sharp notes of intonation or semi-quavers here and I'm like yeah because I'm junking about nine octaves but whatever because I'm having the funnest time 
ever. <laughs> no, because I'm not having the funniest yeah, time yeah, ever. Yeah. And I'm having to hold my face like this because I'm meant to be smiling, but I'm meant to be sad seeing about the death of my child in Les Mis. Like, whatever, you know, like, and so... That's the that's something I'd love to talk about is that by turning your passion into something achievement based, you can kill the joy hugely because it's not just for the sake. But people do this all the time. I'm so passionate about like baking, so I'm going to start a bakery. Mm. No, don't <laughs> do that. Like you have to leave some things as your hobby. Yeah, but also you have to realize that like just because you enjoy something, it doesn't necessarily mean that you want to do it all the time. You enjoy it because it's in you know moment to moment. It's not your full time thing. And I think you've got to be very cautious about making those decisions. But for me, music, it's free. Mm. And particularly as a voice, I don't have to do anything. It's just there. It's there. Like I if I, that. it's the something that I have access to whenever I need it. It's something which I'm always fascinated by the ability to create music simply by what we have inside ourselves. Totally. You know, and that to me, sound always has an interesting role to play in emotion but also in physics and how it affects you know and cells and can move membranes and move matter and particles through the air by the way it is and so to me the joy that comes with simply being in that moment and sharing that sound outside of your own mind and creating something which can sound so you know harsh and beautiful and you know flat and in tone and Mm. all those sorts of things for the sake of that's just how you're feeling has become a very expressive thing. Exercise is joy for me as well. It's not punishment like it used to be as someone who played a lot of sport quite <laughs> seriously for a very long period of time. Oh. It's a celebration of what your body can do. Amazing. And every time I'm moving, you know, at some point, there's like, I can't believe I get to do this. And I think the more that I've understood about the body is like how many amazing processes are actually going. As much as I'm dying as I'm running. You're also like, I'm not, wow. you know, I just always think about, well, what would it be like for someone who can't run? Yeah how much would they give to be dying from a run in this moment? And I'm just like, that's joy. Yeah, that's joy. You've Mm. got to celebrate those things. There's so many other things that bring me joy, but in terms of what do I do to create joy within myself and not from other people? Yeah. It comes back to music. Amazing. Oh my God. I should have gotten you to sing the intro (laughs) or something. (laughs) So the second last question is three interesting things about you that don't normally come up in conversation, but I feel like we've covered a lot of ground and I also have no battery. So I don't (laughs) want to cut out before the last question because I think that's my favorite, favorite question. Go for it. Which is what is your favorite motivational quote? I don't know if it's a motivational quote. Or just a quote or just yeah. a saying or anything, you know. It doesn't have to be motivational. I am not what happened to me. I'm what I chose to become. <gasps> oh, <laughs> yeah, it's so powerful. That's, um, it's not mine. It's from, <laughs> no, by Shelley. No, no, <laughs> no, it's, it's from Carl Jung. It's a Jungian saying. And the reason that I like it so much is because it dovetails perfectly into neuroplasticity and that your brain can change and you can change yourself. At any given moment, your brain is plastic until you die. You're not destined to be anything other than what you want to be. And you're not destined to be anyone other than who you want to be. What an amazing way to finish. (laughs) You are just incredible. (laughs) Just a reflection upon what I see. My brain is exploding in all directions. Thank you so much, Shelley. This was absolutely amazing. Thank you for having me. And I feel like we need to do like maybe version two because there's so many questions that I have. (laughs) Uh, Probably, but (laughs) we'll see.
Oh my gosh. Is your mind as blown as mine was? I've already listened to this multiple times and I still learned something new this time around. Isn't she just wonderful? I'd love to hear any breakthrough moments you might have had. So please screenshot and share the love as you are so good at doing. Tagging at Shelly.Vite and myself or the CZA page so we know what you thought. If you want a little more yay each day, the Facebook community is going fabulously with nearly 400 of us now sharing little snippets of happiness and laughter for everyone to enjoy. And with some meetups and possible speed dating, speed dating <laughs> on the cards. Link to join in the show notes too. Hope you're having an amazing day and are seizing your yay.